standard issue for all women. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here, hoping very much that you've enjoyed your weekend and had some sun on your face, got some joy in your heart. Hold on to that, because we're about to talk Ukraine and also the fears around artificial intelligence. So, you know, keep that joy close, keep that joy close. I am, however, chatting to Susie Madigan, who is an absolute delight. She is also Senior Humanitarian Advisor on Gender and Protection at International Humanitarian Charity Care International and a Human Rights Specialist who's worked as an international humanitarian aid worker for 15 years within the UN and NGOs. So basically, when it comes to humanitarian crises and their responses, Susie very much knows her shit. And the name probably rings a bell because I chatted to her in spring last year about the then fairly new war on Ukraine. Susie's recently back from a trip to Ukraine to meet with the women-led organisations doing a lot of the heavy lifting in keeping the country running, given the amount of the male population that has been conscripted to fight. We chat about how things are on the ground, what these brilliant women are doing and their concerns now, and for what happens after the war. Susie is also founder and author of The Machine Race, an ongoing series of essays investigating artificial intelligence and what it means for Joe and Joan Public. Now, if you're thinking, hang on, that seems a bit of a mix. Her interest in AI comes from her humanitarian work. Susie has witnessed firsthand how inequalities and biases can lead to people ending up in conflicts not of their making and suffering much more in disaster situations. And yet, as citizens, our understanding of AI is mostly pretty limited. I mean, either between being wowed by what it can achieve and terrified by what it can achieve. Yes, pepperoni hugs for AI-generated advert, I am looking at you again. And so, with the machine race, Susie's hoping to demystify and in doing so help democratise AI. Because it is happening, people, and it is happening fast. Just a note, not because I think you excellent lot don't probably already know this, but because it was a new one on me, Susie uses the terms Global South and Global North, which have nothing to do with geography. The terms are strictly economic, very broadly indeed, and I'm using this very broadly indeed. Global South mostly equates to Third World, and Global North mostly equates to First World. Apologies if I just taught some well-read grannies to suck eggs. I am going to hand you over to Susie. Susie, hello and welcome back. Hello, thanks for having me back. Anytime, it's exciting. Exciting and it's about to be quite upsetting, I'm sure, because let's start with your day job. You've recently been over to Ukraine. What are things like on the ground there? So we last chatted about Ukraine back in March last year and obviously a lot has happened since then. I mean, the displacement that we were discussing that was kind of right in the throes of that as women and children were fleeing over borders to all the surrounding countries. In terms of external refugees, it's slightly stabilised, but I mean, huge numbers of refugees now in kind of surrounding countries. So over 8 million people have been wow. displaced externally to Ukraine, mainly women and girls. And within Ukraine itself, there are over 5 million internally displaced people. You know, I talked before about how conflict is absolutely terrible for everybody. And it affects men and women, boys and girls, people with different, you know, backgrounds and vulnerabilities in different ways. And so the needs remain absolutely huge within Ukraine itself. So there are almost 18 million people in need of humanitarian assistance within Ukraine. 
So in the east of the country, that's kind of where people are caught up in active fighting or under constant shelling. And a lot of that caseload, 70% of that caseload actually in those areas are older people and people with disabilities, you know, many people who can't leave. And, you know, and then there are also women there as well, kind of looking after people, you know, so there are huge, huge needs, there are huge protection risks for people who are pregnant or trying to look after children under five, you know, all of those things where you need medical attention and, of course, you know, injuries and so on from conflict, the infrastructure just isn't there to be able to look after people effectively. So, sadly, I can't report a year on that things are better and arguably the situation is way more complex. And while you were over there, were you amid any of the fighting? Did you experience any of it yourself? I went over and um, with a colleague to visit our Care Ukraine office. So we work over there and we're supporting several fantastic local NGOs, ma- mainly women-led organisations. And so they are working throughout Ukraine. So there's you know, large numbers of people who are displaced kind of in, in the west of the country and in, in the centre And then also these organisations are also supporting people around the front lines and beyond them. We went to, so Lviv is over in the west. We went to Kiev, you know, in the the kind of centre, north centre, and then also to Odessa in the south. We weren't in active front lines, but we did experience a few air raids. And certainly kind of in the middle of the night, we spent a few sleepless nights um you know as the air raid sirens went on going down to bunkers unfortunately ukrainians are are pretty used to this now yeah. um although you know you'll have heard on the news that in may the the level of threat from the air from drones and and missiles has really ramped up and they've kind of experienced 17 nights of air raids in may so we just had a tiny kind of insight into what people are living with daily. And, and you know, and that's, that's behind the front lines where there isn't kind of active fighting on the ground. You can only imagine what it is like for the people who remain in the East, you know, who are either caught up in active fighting or under constant shelling with absolute limited access to medical services and to be able to meet their basic needs you know it's a it's a whole different story and really difficult and also really difficult for for people to get in humanitarian aid so you know ultimately the needs you know there needs to be an end to the conflict as soon as possible for all of them and for everyone who's been displaced yeah yeah Okay, let's talk about those brilliant women-led NGOs you mentioned, because with a lot of the male population being conscripted to fight, a hell of a lot of weight for keeping basically everything else going falls squarely on the women who have stayed, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, civil society in Ukraine was, you know, there was quite a large proportion of women who were then working within civil society prior to the conflict, and some really fantastic organisations working on women's rights, on services to survivors of domestic violence, of of sexual violence and so on. And so many women and, you know, women new to, to a kind of a humanitarian response have volunteered and so much of it is volunteering and have become humanitarian aid workers, giving out kind of, you know, hygiene kits and food and also moving people from lines of active conflict as well you know, really putting themselves in danger a, a lot of the time. 
So kind of working in support either with international NGOs sending funding to those local organisations to work to support the population who aren't fighting, but also working on behalf of authorities and so on to try and basically keep the country running. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of the time, this is it's a second job for them and it's a, it's a double burden so many of those women are looking after children, are looking after elderly relatives and so on. There's a kind of a dual idea of like these women are doing a fantastic job. But also let's remember, this is enormous amounts of work for them. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of stuff are they doing that is particular to a conflict situation? There are people who are doing completely different jobs or who, who weren't in paid work before and so kind of as in, you know, many humanitarian situations, whether it's a, a conflict or a natural disaster, a lot of it at first is kind of meeting those very basic needs, you know, particularly when people are displaced. And often women and women and, ch and their children have been displaced multiple times. So it's that basic, you know, finding people shelter, making sure that they can survive, have things to eat, have cash to buy medicines. But also a lot of it is about providing protection services as well so unfortunately you know we've seen that gender-based violence has increased mm. sadly a lot of that is also to do with domestic violence a very kind of a sensitive area here in that you know within conflict it's it, it increases stress levels for everybody who is involved in that yeah of and course. Sadly, domestic violence was an issue as it is globally within Ukraine prior to the conflict. And let's not forget that the conflict has actually been going on in the East since 2014. Yeah. But, you know, now because, you know, so many men were conscripted to fight in the conflict, quite often men will be going to the front. That's obviously a, a fairly brutal experience to have. And then be coming home, you know, sometimes for weekends into the house and, you know, just kind of expected to just, you know, morph back into being themselves and, and playing that kind of the role of the father, the husband and so on. There's a real lack of psychosocial support for people dealing with the war, you know, whether they're fighting or not. Often women and children will be bearing the brunt if that stress is being then kind of acted out back in the home. This kind of normalisation of what's happening, kind of, you know, people going to fight and then in some ways life continuing as normal behind front lines. I mean, I, I use that advisedly. I mean, of course, it's not normal. But, I mean, in, in Lviv, Kiev and Odessa, where we were, I mean, you can walk around in beautiful streets in the middle of the day and, you know, you might almost forget that anything is going on if you were a visitor i would say yeah. you know like myself until of course an air raid uh, siren goes off and we were taking trains where you would see soldiers in their kits saying goodbye to families and getting on trains and going to the front mixing amongst civilian passengers or soldiers walking around the streets in fatigues because they're just on leave for a brief amount of time this issue of how those kind of issues are dealt with between men and women and, and, and people who are brutalised at the front, I think is a big issue. And certainly protection services require better funding than they are by international donors because it's pitifully small, less than 1% at the moment. I was going to ask you about that and about the fact that obviously when the war started, the war on Ukraine started, 
last February, there was this huge surge of support and vitally cash being thrown at Ukraine. And we see this time and time again, that as a conflict goes on for longer and longer, Syria, Afghanistan, all of the places where we have seen lots of conflict, the, the kind of news response gets desensitized. We get desensitized to it if you're not living it. Is that evident when you're over there? Because obviously you guys are still going over there and helping, but is it evident that the support has kind of waned or trickled off? The support in terms of kind of global interest in it or in terms of kind of international donors? A bit of both. It has to an extent, but I, I would say that actually Ukraine is slightly different at the moment. And of course, you know, we are only in the second year and let's hope that there are many more years to come. Of course. But I, I would say more than sometimes more than other countries, Ukraine has retained the level of support. And actually, quite often what the humanitarian community is concerned about is that that support to Ukraine must be maintained, but also must the support for all of the other emergencies mm-hmm. happening in all the rest of the world. And unfortunately, to uh, I shouldn't get too political, but since the massive aid cuts, cuts to international aid in the UK made in 2021, when our commitment to providing 0.7% of GDP to international um, overseas assistance was cut down to 0.5%. We've seen huge impact on Mm -hmm. emergencies around the world. I mean, in East Africa at the moment, Horn of Africa, they are facing near famine-like conditions. And yet the funding that the UK has provided to that crisis over the last year is an absolute fraction of what it was in 2017 in Somalia when there was a near famine there. And hundreds of thousands of deaths were prevented at that time because the UK stepped up. And unless we kind of maintain and reinstate some of that funding to these international crises, we're going to to see worsening humanitarian impact. And, you know, and then, you know, we're talking about women and girls often on, on, on this, on this podcast. I mean, it's having a huge impact on the kind of vital services around Mm. reproductive health, around clinical management of rape, girls' education, you know, all of these things. And all of these things have knock-on effect, not just for women and girls, but for the rest of society. Of course. And uh, Susie, I know you can't get political, but I'll just add that that 0.2%, we don't even really feel it. That's the thing. It makes headline news, but we, we don't really feel that we're giving that And we are certainly not giving it to people at home, which I think a lot of people think is where it's going. So, yeah, fuck you, the Tories. Anyway. (laughs) No no comment from this side. (laughs) So professional. When we did chat last year and the conflict was just a, a couple of months old and has now been raging for 16 months, have the concerns of women there changed? Because obviously they are putting so much into keeping the country running. I imagine there are worries about what happens when peace comes. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a real difference now. I mean, when we were speaking back last year, I mean, many of the same concerns remain. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about fears about gender-based violence. Trafficking, sadly, has... It, th- that was a big story, right? When, oh, you know, when, when women and adolescent girls and so on, obviously children, were fleeing over borders. 
And that was a big story then because people could understand, right, if you have lost absolutely everything, you suddenly become reliant on others completely for your survival, that's a massive trafficking and exploitation risk. Sadly, that risk of trafficking has now increased, but talk about it has reduced. So, yeah. you know, it's these kind of subjects that need to get back into back into the news and require interventions. But in addition to that, in terms of kind of women's rights, so, you know, over the last few years, I mentioned, you know, these, there are some fantastic women-led organizations, both providing services to women, but also working on gender equality and human rights. I think for a lot of those women, particularly women working on gender equality and advocacy around that, they've had to divert their work completely now to pure humanitarian assistance, which they were never doing before because mm-hmm. that need wasn't there. And I think what women are concerned about is that it seems that they have made some marginal gains in terms of kind of a leadership role or kind of independence and so on, because all the men are very much in harm's way at the front line and away from home. And women are having to keep the you know, country running and providing these services. But at the same time, that is not necessarily translating into women being kind of regarded as heroes to keep the country running in the same way that the men are, you know, quite rightly regarded as heroes for fighting, you know, heroes defending the nation, you know, is, is what people talk about. What women were saying to us when we were meeting with them is that we're really worried about what's going to happen at the end of the war and that it might be the narrative is about, well, women kind of need to return to the home. The family is the all-important thing. We must rebuild a, a strong nation and women must focus on raising a family and that, you know, men as kind of heroes at the front will now kind of should be given kind of those leadership positions, you know, at community level and all levels of of society. And that those gains around gender equality or nominal gains might not replicate into a piece and that the piece might not be as inclusive as as it could be. Yeah. I'm doing my best Rosie the Riveter pose uh, (laughs) because we all know about Rosie the Riveter, but we also know about the backlash at the end of the war. And it's not even that the gains made for women's rights during World War II were pushed back. It was that they went back even further and women were not given a seat at the table. So I totally understand why the women in Ukraine are worried about that. It is an absolutely valid worry, particularly when, as we discussed last time we chatted, gender equality wasn't up to scratch in Ukraine before the conflict. I mean, absolutely. And and I think that's where kind of international donors and people in civil society can really help raise the voices of civil society and women in Ukraine and help them to, you know, get into those political fora and international fora where they can talk about those kind of issues. Sometimes we will see women at high level conferences and delegations. And in fact, there's a Ukraine recovery conference hosted by the Ukrainian government, but also the UK government in London in June. But I think sometimes for some of those women's organisations, what they feel sometimes is it's not always people in the room who will focus on gender equality or the rights of other marginalised groups and really bring out those issues 
or if they are, they're slightly lost in more kind of high level political discussions Mm -hmm. about the conflict and the dynamics of conflict, all of which are important. But if we don't drill down into, you know, what's the social recovery going to look like? Let's not just focus on the recovery of infrastructure to the economy, to business, the private sector focused recovery, all of which is vital. Yeah. But without, if you don't have the conversation about, you know, what society going to look like, how equal is that going to be for, for everybody within that society? Not just women and girls, but everybody. Yeah. Shush, women, wait your turn. Oh, when will that turn be? No one knows. <laughs> not now. Not now. Okay, let's talk about the machine race. So, Susie, I am going to pose one of your own questions to you, which is, why is an aid worker like you, normally focused on families starving in Somalia or women denied rights in Afghanistan, thinking about artificial intelligence? Isn't there enough to worry about in the real world? (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So the reason why I'm looking at this, so I, I started getting really interested in this probably last summer that time this was before you know chat gpt kind of hit the headlines and so on and i started becoming fascinated in in ai and looking at some incredible things that it could do and there are certainly organizations that have made some fantastic advances like google DeepMind had unlocked the key to protein folding which is going to transform kind of understanding medical conditions and drug creation and so on the potential great advances for climate change mitigation for democratizing education, all of these things. But I started going into this and thinking, okay, so this is like massive societal shift. Mm. And also, hang on, this isn't necessarily all great news. And realizing that this, certainly kind of in the aid sector, we spend a lot of our time trying to understand the kind of the social, political, economic dynamics that lead to conflicts to lead to some people doing worse out of disasters than others to marginalization looking at all of these things and thinking hang on with such a massive societal shift the architecture is now being drawn up by very few people and if we're not careful we're going to replicate the same level of marginalization and exclusion and the poor division of benefits that we have already, and it's going to be exponentially worse. So I thought, okay, I really need to educate myself about this and understand this, and I really want to take people with me on that journey. So I set up the machine race, and at the end of last year, ChatGPT hit the headlines, and I thought, okay, if you didn't need a kind of a big signal before that, you know, this is a massive flag. And so I started writing about it. And what I want to do in, in the machine race, which people can follow, so it's a, um, it's a blog site on Medium and you can follow on Twitter as well, is basically talk to loads of different, really interesting people from artists, to CEOs, to people in the military, to scientists and so on, and get a really kind of broad, well, a deep dive into the, all the different domains and aspects that this is going to affect. And I also really kind of want to, you know, encourage the humanitarian and development sector to to really think about this and engage with this urgently, because it was beginning to strike me that (laughs) 
it feels a little bit like we're all busy on the top deck of the Titanic, kind of like neatening up the deck chairs or trying to make sure they don't fly over the edge or fishing them out of the water if they, you know, if they do. And we're not noticing at the same time, there's a massive great iceberg ahead. Now, yeah. that iceberg has the ability to cause a massive disruption to our path. I mean, it could also be good. It could kind of, to, to really stretch the analogy, it could change the shape of ship engineering and lots of people might benefit from that. But unless we are conscious about what this impact is going to have on the communities that we're supposed to be supporting and whose voices we're supposed to be elevating, then AI is not going to, first of all, represent their views and what is important to people and how they want their society to look in the global south. And it also might actively do harm. And there are already so many flaws baked into artificial intelligence that have been in there since its inception and that are just getting larger because of how fast AI progress is accelerating, right? And I, I cannot overstate how it is going hell for leather. It is so fast. I do think conversations around AI have got more open, frequent and louder, particularly since you said ChatGPT was released in late 2022. Although, to be fair, I've mostly got Nick Cave to thank for knowing what's going on there. He's not happy with it. Thank you, Mr. Cave, for many things. But also, the machine race was a real eye-opener for me because, you know, I'm pretty savvy. I read up on a lot of stuff. But that combination of finance plus tech equals, no, thank you. I don't understand this for so many people doesn't it? Exactly. And I, and I think that was another one of my key drivers for the machine race is that I'm not a technologist. I'm not a tech expert. My background is human rights. And so I'm coming at it from a human rights perspective and, and well, somebody who loves the arts, somebody who is just, a, is just a citizen, right? But also someone who spent the last kind of 15, 20 years working with communities who have experienced serious marginalization because they aren't given a choice and that's that's a political situation right mm -hmm. and with ai i think the key thing is for everybody to have a voice in this essentially a new society is being designed normally in many countries in democracies we have a vote on what society looks like, how resources are divided out and so on. Now, we might argue about that a lot, which is important, but, you know, supposedly we have a vote in that. Now, yeah. if AI is creating a whole new society, then everybody's voices need to be involved in, in how that is designed. But I think another reason why people's voices aren't necessarily heard is, as you say, it's they're kind of like, you know, it seems to be kind of mixed up you know, yeah, people are terrified of the economy or, or they're terrified of computer science, right? Unless you're an expert in, in either. And it just seems so confusing, so overwhelming. The term AI anxiety is now being coined. Okay, people, interesting. So people like, you know, like climate, climate anxiety. And I think people are so um, kind of overwhelmed by it they, that quite often it's like, okay, I don't, I don't actually want to engage in this. And I think so much of the media around it is kind of more hyped up it's the top line you have to really drill down into what's going on and what are the nuance around this so what i'm trying to do in the machine race is kind of decode a lot of it and also do a bit of the drilling down into what does this mean what does it mean for different areas of life what are the human rights impacts a little bit on the technology and how does this stuff work and therefore why is that important 
but just to demystify it for people so that we can all learn together, educate ourselves, and we also need to be organised literacy campaigns as well, urgently, not just in schools, but for adults as well, about what AI is and, and, and what it means for society and how we can all be involved. Totally. And demystifying it is, is the huge battle, I think. That is the, the, the first huge hurdle to overcome. And I've got to say that the machine race listeners, it's cracking because Susie is very level-headed, whereas, you know, I am, say, terrified and fascinated by the AI-generated pepperoni hookspot advert I keep wanging on about and the Boston <laughs> Dynamics dancing robots. I love them, but they scare me and they feel quite dystopian. But Let's end on a slightly positive note. They are so damn clever, it blows my mind. And amid that fear of bias becoming even more baked in and the ultimate power as ever being held by people not a million miles away from the characters we've just been watching in succession, there is hope and help for humanity in AI too, isn't there? Yes, please, please, Susie. <laughs> there is, there is, as long as we work out what to do about disinformation and deep fakes and, and how elections will be, uh, you know, because we've got 70 uh, major elections, significant elections in 2024. So we need to make sure that that is addressed and that there is... You are not helping my AI anxiety right now. (laughs) I mean, I think there are. I think it's about being conscious of what the potential risks are. And then in order that we can then embrace the opportunities for, yeah, for healthcare, for, for an enriched life. But that, that enriched life and, and the benefits of that, before we get too carried away with that, is understanding, okay, how would those benefits be democratically and in a representative way shared out amongst the whole population, global south as well as global north, and to make sure that we're clear-eyed about potential risks around, yeah, as you say, centralization of power in certain companies or people not accepting the results of elections which could potentially lead to conflict if they believe that they've been manipulated so so this is you know with all of these things it's it's i think it is about how do we all educate ourselves as quickly as possible and hopefully the machine race helps a little bit with that to make it a little bit easier but then therefore we can use our power as citizens to influence and ask for change of our governments and also as consumers if we all drink the Kool-Aid of how fantastically fun ChatGPT is and, you know, how much easier these things make our lives or if we just want to go to one chatbot and believe it's the arbiter of all truth because it's just giving us the information, it's just to be a bit more kind of critical about it whilst also not too scared that we don't embrace the massive opportunities that it can bring. Susie, that was an amazing answer. And you started off and I was worried, but then you ended with hope and I am grateful. Thank you. (laughs) Where can people find out more about The Machine Race? If you just Google Susie Madigan, The Machine Race on Medium. Uh, Medium is the blog site, also on Twitter at The Machine Race. And then for anything on Care International, you can go to Care's website and find out what we're up to there. Listeners, she put me to the post on asking about Care International. She is total pro. And also, I've got to say, Susie, you used to be a journalist, didn't you? And so the machine race is just so gorgeously written. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's good fun. Yeah, um, and hopefully an engaging read. I think probably often people think, oh, my God, artificial intelligence, that's technology. I'm not interested. But hopefully it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit wider than that, focusing on the social. It is you writing it, though, right? You've not, you've not got some sort of AI involvement. 
<laughs> I haven't. That that be absolutely the cliche joke now that anyone writing <laughs> tech is saying. No, I pro- promise it's me. You're welcome for me being a cliche as well. I'm sure that surprised none of our listeners. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it has, as ever, been a pleasure, it, albeit you know slightly anxiety-inducing, chat with you. Thank you so much. Oh, bless you, Mickey. Thanks so much for having me back on and great to chat to you again. Standard Issue for All Women.